Hello and welcome to the latest edition of China Inc. by Bamboo Works, where we discuss the latest business and financial news from China and what it all means. I'm Doug Young, Bamboo Works editor in chief, and I'm joined today by Rene Vangustine, one of our founding partners, who's also a longtime China watcher and former investment banker. Today we'll look at the return of Australian timber to China, and we'll also look at Alibaba's plans to spin off and list its cloud, supermarket, and logistics units. We'll start with Australian timber, which was just one of many Australian products banned from China at the height of tensions between the two countries around three years ago. After that chilly period, relations finally appear to be thawing a bit. China previously ended its ban on Australian coal, and last week it did the same on Australian timber. All of this comes as Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese is reportedly in talks for a trip to Beijing later this year. So, Renee, what's the driving force behind this recent thaw in Australia-China relations, and has anything fundamentally changed since the tensions first flared? Well, as always, um, it's hard to tell if there has been fundamental <laughs> right. change or not. What's your interpretation? Um, I think that we, you know, we're looking at geopolitics here, quite obviously. Um, there are a few things that come to mind. First of all, Australia has a new government and a new prime minister, um, and they have at least on certain issues tried to follow different policies from the previous government. One that comes immediately to mind is on global warming. I think another one is also on um, uh, the economy in general and, and, and global trades and so on. So you have a new government there. Uh, not surprising that any country, uh, and especially those that have had challenging relationship with Australia, would look at this as an opportunity maybe to act differently going forward. China is also pretty good and pretty active at casting the U.S. as the big problem in the world and therefore trying to chip at the solidarity between the U.S. and, and its allies, including obviously countries in Asia and Australia is one of them, countries in Europe and so on. So it could all be related to that. Hmm. I would not consider this a fundamental change as opposed to probably a more opportunistic move by Beijing, and then time will tell what will eventually come out of it in reality. Well, what about the, the whole fact of the matter is, is that uh, Australia has historically and, and recently is, is one of China's biggest suppliers of raw materials. Do you think there's any realism in here when, when China cuts these things off? It's, it's almost hurting itself as much as, as it's hurting Australia. I'm sure Australia is not happy about you know not, not having a market for all its coal. But at the same time, when China cut off all this coal, we saw Chinese coal prices spike and electricity shortages. I mean, is there an element of, of sort of realism here that China actually needs Australia and they can't really just afford to cut them off like this? Um, 
Yeah, possibly to some extent, but uh, one would have to look at each and every commodity in particular, because for some of them at least, there are alternate sources of material around the world. You know, in iron ore, for instance, obviously Brazil is definitely one of them. And I think that China has, uh, over the past year or two years, actually imported more from Brazil as a compensation for what they were not getting from Australia anymore. So unlike some very specific commodities, in general, there are always alternate sources that are available. Prices may be different. The quality of the commodity itself may uh, may vary. And coal is a good example because some countries have coal, but not necessarily the kind of coal that is important, for instance, and economically better to produce steel, for instance. So I don't think that it's a blanket approach to it. Uh, I don't think we can say, you know, it, it applies in general to all commodities that Australia used to provide China. But possibly on a case-by-case basis, depending at which one in particular China may feel right now that uh, it doesn't have a good alternative uh, source. So, Rene, um, do you think that this this has any sort of bigger implications for China's approach to some of the countries that, you know, it's had stormy relations with lately, uh, you know, two of them being the U.S. and Canada. Could we look at this at all as, as, you know, maybe China realizing that it can't send relations into sort of deep freeze every time there's a rough patch or something happens that it doesn't like? And, you know, does this mean we could see maybe some improvement in some of these other relations? I'm not a big fan of of uh, that line of thinking. I think it's way too soon, I think, for China to feel that it is in a position where it has to start playing more nicely, I would say, with with a host of countries. Um, it's still, in my view, pretty much in a mode where it's, it's more focused on trying to pick certain countries one by one and appeal to direct trade, diplomatic relationships um, as a way to try and reverse some of the measures that have been taken over the past year to two years that China is not happy with. I think a good example recently is Holland, where, uh, as you know, uh, ASML decided to follow the U.S. line in terms of restrictions on advanced technology by deciding not to sell to China the most advanced equipment that is necessary to produce the most advanced uh, chips these days. The uh, last week, there was a visit in Holland by, uh, I believe, the foreign minister of China, who publicly appealed to uh, the historical relationship between Holland and China, and kind of uh, exhorting uh, Holland to follow a more independent course. And and this is only one example, and, and I think that they're obviously trying to do that 
with a few countries around the world, in particular in Europe, where, you know, when you look at it from outside Europe and even inside Europe, there are clearly very different lines of thinking among different countries in Europe in terms of how to play this whole issue of relationship with the US and relationship with China. Germany is a perfect example. You know, close to 10% of the uh, trade of Germany is with China, which is twice as much as uh, the second important country in Europe. So we're going to continue to see, uh, I think, that kind of initiative. In my view, that doesn't mean that there is a fundamental change as opposed to, once again, I think a more opportunistic approach at leveraging you know, a situation here, a situation there hmm. that inevitably are different from each other. All right. Well, at least you don't see this as uh, reflecting any big uh, changes coming up, I guess. I think it's too soon for that. I think they're still in a mode where they think that they can force their views on certain selective countries. And uh, Mr. Macron, the French president, obviously has, you know, in my view at least, added reality to that, uh, to that <laughs> thinking by, uh, you know, going to Beijing with 50-plus business people and declaring that Europe should not be dragged into any situation involving Taiwan. So, you know, they're, they're very they're different countries in Europe have different economic interests, which in certain cases make their position weaker than the position of the U.S., for instance, and, and I think Beijing is very good at trying to pick on these things. Canada is a totally different issue. And there was a, a flare-up very recently, again, with accusations of trying to influence elections there and so on. So that's not going anywhere anytime soon in terms of getting better. Okay. All right. Well, enough, enough of politics for now. Let's, let's move on uh, to our other story, which is uh, the latest spin-off news from Alibaba. Um, Alibaba first announced plans to break itself up into six pieces in March. And on a previous show, we talked about reports of a potential IPO for its international e-commerce business. Now, Alibaba's announced it'll fully spin off its cloud unit and also make IPOs for its Fresh Hippo supermarket chain and its Tainiao logistics unit. So what's driving this breakup? I mean, we've talked about it a little bit before, but... Also, is there any significance to the order in which Alibaba is hiving off these these different units? Well, what's driving it, I think, you know, depends on who you're talking to or who you're listening to. Uh, very clearly, the company has positioned this as a strategic move to enhance shareholder value, create additional value for shareholders, and so on. That's one way to look at it, and that's the corporate line. Um, there's a very strong suspicion, on the other hand, uh, that uh, they were forced to do this because, one, they had become too big uh, in, in uh, the Chinese economy. They had become too big in the minds of people with too much potential influence and so on. 
and that therefore the corporate justification is just putting a brief face on you know the inevitable so mm. you know i think that we will continue to um to hear about these two different uh, ways of um, of looking at what happened this being said a decision was made the um, program basically was set up uh, to execute and i think that what we're seeing now is a company that for whatever reason is moving relatively quickly in terms of executing a strategic uh, realignment i don't think that there's necessarily any particular significance in the order i would think that um, it could simply be you know which ones are easier to hive off quickly take to market uh, rather quickly you know if if once you make a decision to break up uh, a company lots of people are going to be nervous shareholders investors analysts and so on for some it's never going to move fast enough for other they're going to start focusing on execution risks and so on and and um, and destroying value for shareholders as opposed to what the company is trying to accomplish which is increase value for shareholders so from a corporate standpoint you always have a real interest in trying to move as quickly as possible so it could simply be that those are the ones that are easiest to hive off and and bring to market the one that's interesting and 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 that that's you know kind of how i would look at it when you look at international e-commerce you look at fresh hippo supermarket channel logistics the one that is different here obviously is ali cloud and um, and what they're doing or what they have announced that they're going to do is that they're going to spin it off to the existing shareholders over i think the next 12 months um that uh, to me raises you know additional questions as to what the next shoe to drop in that particular thing if you look at the e-commerce you look at fresh hippo you look at chanyao uh okay so you create legal entities or they already created you bring them to market in the form of an ipo and off you go and they're gone right Right. cloud is being spun off to existing shareholders so the next question that comes to mind is who are the existing shareholders when when and who really controls alibaba today when you look at institutional investors in alibaba if you exclude softbank and you look at publicly available figures obviously only the top 5 6 institutions global institutions holdings in alibaba accounts for you know very few percentages of the overall shares of the company so that leaves softbank to some extent which has been i think selling off at least part of their holdings that leaves jack ma that leaves uh, mr tsai and a few others so those people will receive shares in uh, in cloud so then the next thing is where is ali cloud going to be listed i would be willing to bet a lot of money on the fact that it certainly will not be in the us hmm. it could be in hong kong possibly would it be in the asia market in which case most foreign investors 
corporate shareholders where they would have to sell somehow because they are not allowed to hold A shares unless they have operations in China that have been approved for investment in the local domestic market. So I think there's still a lot of questions that are unanswered today, and it will be interesting to see how what the answers to those questions are you know, going forward. Mm-hmm. I think we all know that tech, cloud business in particular, is very sensitive to the Chinese government. So I don't think we've heard the end of this story. Okay. Yeah, no, it's definitely very much a story in progress. I mean, uh, how about the other two? Uh, you, you've talked a bit about cloud, but um, the two that are getting their own IPOs, Fresh Hippo, which they, you know, is a supermarket chain. I, I don't don't see a lot of uh, real distinguishing, you know, what distinguishes this from other supermarket chains. Uh, and then also Tainiao, uh, do you think either of those will get, get much interest uh, from investors? Well, I mean, Fresh Hippo is obviously a play on consumers in China. Lots of people thought that after the reopening of China, the consumer sector was going to boom and like really boom. That has not been the case. I think we've talked about that earlier uh, in previous podcasts. I didn't think that it would happen quickly at least, but there's no timetable here in any case for this IPO. It's all going to mm. depend, I think, on um, on how the consumer sector in China is going to perform in, in the coming months. And uh, if it indeed performs pretty well and grows again and so on at a relatively steady and sustainable pace, then there'll be uh, interest in this. Because no matter what, I mean, Fresh Hippo is still different from your normal I would say plain vanilla uh, supermarket chain in in China. I mean, they have a pretty heavy use of technology. Their facilities, their shops are much more recent. I shopped in one of them, I think, about four years ago. And uh, that was pretty impressive in terms of the layout, in terms of the cleanliness, the use of technology, and so on. So it, it, it is, to some extent, a different story. Mm-hmm. Chanyao logistics, I mean, logistics are logistics. I think that obviously this this is an industry that is somewhat cyclical, depends heavily, of course, on uh, on the health of, of the economy overall. The, uh, there are already a bunch of uh, Chinese logistics companies that are publicly traded. Some have done okay. Some have done well when the economy was booming. Um, it's uh, it's a bit of a hodgepodge, um, and and it's kind of difficult to predict investors' interest in in that particular sector. Uh, once again, it's um, you know where do you list that? Um, if um, if you list in Hong Kong, there'll be probably not a lot of interest. And as we have seen with a lot of Chinese companies listing in Hong Kong, there isn't much interest, there isn't much liquidity. Yeah, it belongs, it has belonged to Alibaba, but at some point in time, it goes public, spun off, goes public, and so on. There's no particular magic of the Alibaba name attached to it, at least when when you look at it from the outside, right? Hmm. Tencent has done very well in Hong Kong, but 
everybody knows who Tencent, everybody knows who WeChat, I mean, definitely in Hong Kong. Um, who in Hong Kong, other than very specialized institutional investors, is going to know what China is uh, overall, right? Maybe they'll go to the Asia market. Thanks for joining us this week. In our next program, we'll look at China taking the crown from Japan as the world's largest car exporter. And we'll also look at a new foreign acquisition by domestic car maker Geely. And a hint there, uh, James Bond might like this one. If you like what you hear, please tell your friends about us and rate us and share us on your favorite podcast app. Meantime, hope to see you all next week. Goodbye for now. Goodbye. Thank you all.